This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. When I was hosting Left, Right, and Center for KCRW, we would often call Juliet Kayyem when there had been a big problem. Juliet teaches at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and she used to be the Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security for Intergovernmental Affairs. So she's a good person to talk with if the government is responding to a hurricane or a pandemic or any kind of emergency situation. And over the last two years, that's something we've all had to think a lot about, often with quite a bit of dissatisfaction. The disaster response we've seen has often left much to be desired. So that's why I was excited that Juliet has a new book out called The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. It gives us a non-disaster reason to chat with Juliet and that allows us to be a little less crisis-focused, to take an eye forward to how to be ready to manage better through the next disaster. And uh, when I say manage better, I, I say that advisedly. That's part of the message of Juliet's book, that disasters will happen. It's not just about preventing them. It's about making them as undisastrous as they can be when they happen. Uh, so, Juliet, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me, and congratulations on uh, the podcast and, and all things new Josh Barrow. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I want to start actually very very broad with you here, which is that this is a book about disasters. It's not a book about a specific kind of disaster. And I think a lot of people, the way they think about this is there are certain things that you do and that the government does to prepare for a pandemic. There are things you do to prepare for wildfires, hurricanes, that sort of thing. And these are essentially separate things, separate domains. You need PPE uh, for a pandemic. That's not something that you're especially concerned about with a wildfire. So, so what does it mean to have a broad discipline of disaster preparedness? What are the things that we do to be generally ready for disasters rather than just ready for a specific kind of disaster? That's a, a great starting question because we tend to think of each of these disasters as unique, distinct, a different kind of risk, a different kind of threat, and therefore we're not looking at the commonalities. Um, in my world in disaster management, we have a word to describe all threats. I mean, it's just a basically all hazards. We do all hazards planning. And the reason why you think you we should be thinking of things that way is because the differences are not as great as we think, and the commonalities are being neglected because we tend to think of each disaster as a sort of a surprise, right? Like, oh my gosh, you know, oh wow, how did that happen? And so what I tried to do is to look back at centuries of disasters and to pick out uh, what we were getting wrong about disaster planning and management and the way we talk about it, and then uh, prepare us for and the, ine the inevitability is the wrong word, just for the expectation that we will be hit. The devil is generic. The devil will come again and again. And so basically disasters is a common phenomenon. And that's that's how I want us to think about them. And then, as you said at the end of the introduction, how can we fail safer? Right. That's just I mean, we just want to fail safer, not safely. They're not safe. We're just we're trying to minimize the consequences of a world uh, that is going to bring a certain amount of harm. And how do we do it that right now? I mean, obviously, everyone looks at this, you know, experience, a million dead from COVID approximately in the United States. It has all over the world, obviously, this has been a huge disaster. And we've seen countries do better and worse on the margin. Some of the some of the countries that did really well for a couple of years are now really having a lot of trouble with zero COVID policies falling apart. But I think people look at that and see, you know, we really could have done a lot better. Germany did better. Yes. South Korea did a lot better, that sort of thing. Are we really bad at disaster response? Are there aspects of this that we're actually doing well? Uh, in, in, well, in the United States, I mean, part of the 
challenge as I as I write in the book is is uh, to understand the architecture of disaster management or the architecture of crisis, which is just a, a long way of saying you know countries are often built to be unsafe, and the United States is one of them. Uh, you're not going to change the Constitution through disaster management. We have a federal system that, under the Tenth Amendment delegates public safety and public health authorities uh, to governors and they delegate down to mayors. And there's a complicated system of, you know, local action, state management, federal support. That's how generally most disasters happen. Uh, COVID was different. It was the country's first 50 state disaster uh, with a federal leadership that unnecessarily went to war with the states uh, and didn't do the things that the feds are actually good at, which is uh, future planning, right? Is that what, what do I need and how do I get it there? And then what's my priority in terms of where I'm, I'm going to send it? The Trump White House failed to do that when it was needed the most. So, you know, I'm, I, I shouldn't be defensive. I always say I'm not fatalistic. It's not, it's just, you know, you're, we're not going to change our system of governance through the lens of Hurricane Katrina or COVID-19. So now I have to accept what that is. Uh, and so what, what we're doing right is ironically also our architecture that actually if we had, if we didn't have a distributed government and we had that original White House, it would have been worse. And it was right. actually the ingenuity of mayors and governors and we tend to focus on the really horrible ones. But for the most part, you know, Ohio's Republican governor, you know, I mean, they've been trying to figure out how to balance this. For the most part, most governors uh, acted responsibly enough. And the debates were around timing and, and mandates and, and masking and things like that. When you ask sort of how do you do it well. The, in my world, I, there's only two times. That is what we call left of boom and right of boom. Right. This is a framework you come back to again, again in the, in, in the book. Basically, left of boom is is all the prevention and protection efforts that we put into place to stop the crisis from coming, and then right of boom is to be wonky response, recovery, and resiliency. It's the sort of immediate response that you're seeing in New Orleans as we talk the day after a horrific tornado in New Orleans, and then recovery building back, and then resiliency hopefully building back better. And what I mm -hmm. realized in looking at these two times, it was, no one ever focused on the boom. No, I mean, this is where I want us to reconceptualize, <laughs> you know, the we can actually prepare for the boom itself in terms of what can we set up for communications and situational awareness? How can we stop what I call cascading losses as sort of less bad? And so we're always focused on hand wringing of how could this happen? BP so horrible, Boeing so horrible, you know, always like everyone's right. to blame and how could this happen? And then on the other side, like, oh, the happy people who are, you know, want a more resilient world. Well, that's past and that's way future. And like, I'm kind of here right now. And that's also a common theme that you are here in the book. So, so am I summarizing this this accurately? I mean, first of all, like this left of boom, right of boom concept, this is a time scale. It's like you're moving from the past to the future. And so the left is the past, the right is the future. Your contention is essentially is that we underinvest in, I guess you could call it on the boom, or maybe it's immediately to the right of the boom. It's the things that we do right as and immediately after the crisis happens in order to mitigate its effects, that that's, that's where we're underinvesting as a society, that we focus so much on preventing disasters, and we have these long-range plans about resiliency and, you know, what we're, we're going to do so that, you know, 
climate change, you know, and flooding related, that, that the, what that will do decades in the future, that there's not enough investment in the things that you do in what, the immediate days after? In the immediate moments and what, and what you can do now, because the boom will be yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? In other words, our investments in now uh, will mitigate. They won't stop the harm. I'm already, I'm already assuming the devil's coming. And they won't build you better. They're just going to save lives and reputation and companies and money and everything else at the moment of that boom. And that's super important because as you said, you know, I, we have to quantify things, right? So a million dead is worse than 200,000 dead. I'm not happy about 200,000 dead, but my initial numbers, and I was public about it, is I thought that three to 400,000 Americans would probably die from a global pandemic that was hitting a country with a difficult public health system and a difficult governance system and and a strong anti-vax movement. And arguably a difficult society. I mean, I think people yeah. sort of underrate yeah. the the cultural factors that make certain responses possible. What South Korea did, I don't think could have could have been done in the United States under any legal framework. Or New Zealand ends up, you know, while well, we everyone talks, but please, you know, we should we should be so lucky. And I think those cultural differences too, I have examples from other countries, from other centuries. One of my favorite examples in the book is, of course, Fukushima, which as a narrative, and this is very relevant for the war right now in Ukraine, as a narrative, it became the launch pad. Fukushima, sorry, is uh, the March 11, 2011 earthquake leading to a tsunami, leading to a nuclear meltdown at the Fukushima power, a nuclear power plant in Japan. That launched a narrative that impacted countries like Germany, that nuclear power was inherently unsafe. That's both true but unhelpful because lots of things are inherently unsafe. Air travel is inherently unsafe. Like I can name a lot of things that are inherently unsafe. And Fukushima is a good example where the cultural norms of preparedness, which required, um, I don't mean to be caricature here. It's just, it's just, there's a, there's a strong hierarchy. The Fukushima operations, people had to go to headquarters in Tokyo. So they weren't able to be nimble the story no one knows of nuclear facility down the street. It was hit harder. And because it just had a different uh, leadership and a cultural focus, uh, was able to, for want of a better word, turn off uh, and protect the facility. Uh, the facility uh, was closed just because Fukushima is not a, a happy area, but much of Fukushima is not a happy area, but did not have any radiation release. And so we we should we're taking the wrong lessons from Fukushima. So the lesson basically was this this was a preventable disaster that we failed to prevent, but we learned something about how to prevent it. And instead, you've seen countries like Japan and Germany moving away from nuclear yeah. energy as a result of the of the crisis. It's, I mean, it's a bad long term lesson for us. I mean, it's it's, it's a it's a viable clean energy uh, source, uh, cleaner than offshore drilling, that's for sure. And But people get captivated by, well, it's inherently unsafe. Everything is unhandled. I mean, this is the world. We, every, and you're just making it safer, right? Not safe. But so let's let's talk about what it looks like then to, to have that that right of boom response, which is to say, you know, I assume the boom in this instance, it's not the meltdown. The boom is the event that causes the flooding that disrupts the plant. And the meltdown is the, you know, the really bad possible outcome there. You want to intervene in such a way you, you, you presumably still have a bad outcome when the plant is flooded, but it's not nearly as destructive as that. But so what, what does it mean to build competencies so that we have better responses like that? I, I mean, I imagine in the specific 
nuclear plant case, it's something about basically management structures and responses similar to what we saw with, you know, that they've changed over the last few decades, the way that pilots are supposed to behave in airline cockpits, where they're supposed to be consultative with each other and raise problems early so that things don't spiral out of control. There's some cultural shifts there that you want to try to move through, but I assume there's a lot more to it than that to sort of learn how to, how to manage these problems so they don't spin out of control when they arrive. Right. I, I'm very focused on I, process, right? So that's just, I'm a process person and give me give me harm and I'll just look at the process and see what went wrong. So the first thing, and this is also for private sector or as importantly for private sector, if you're designed for the moment of the boom, you're going to do much better. And we've seen that time and time again. So I'll just, a little history again. So, you know, we've got companies that have, after 9-11, hired chief security officers. Then the internet came and exploded, and then they hired CISOs, chief information security officers. You know this world, Josh. And then Mm -hmm. now after the pandemic, we've got literally, you know, major retailers hiring chief medical officers or or what they call chief public health officers because they want the intelligence, right? They want to know what's going on. Well, when the thing happens, that's a lot of chiefs. So what I'm, what I think companies, for example, need instead a chief preparedness person. I don't give a damn about what the harm is, which will activate, one activate whatever the re- appropriate response protocols are, which might be specific, but all of them are mm. some form of an incident command structure, which I describe in the book. I mean, all of them are some form of someone's in charge driving resources and has access to the top. And when companies begin to take preparedness seriously, then you see appropriate responses. And when they don't, you see these crazy overcompensating responses, as we saw with Colonial Pipeline earlier last year, where a stupid ransomware attack, I mean, the lamest ransomware attack in the world. Let, let's go Let's go through that a little more concretely. Colonial Pipeline, the, the cyber attack was against their system for billing customers. What, what did they do wrong? What was, what would a, what would a non-overreactive responsive look like? You would have, you would have prepared for, my God, if we have a ransomware attack, why are our operating systems on the same as our more vulnerable HR invoicing and billing systems? That's, these are easy fixes. I want to ask about in the public sector, being ready for right after the boom, just to the right of the boom. We just went through this pandemic and states and localities were supposed to be prepared for the idea that there would be some sort of pandemic of a respiratory disease that they might have to respond to. And uh, uh, reader Rafael Kanopka actually writes in, uh, noting that we had a federal law that passed in 2006 that required each state to develop a pandemic emergency plan and have it certified by the Centers for Disease Control. And we gave $20 billion to states in order to put these plans together. And then when COVID hit, it was like a bunch of the plans were, were blank in a bunch of places. And then even the states that had put together full-fledged plans didn't actually follow them. And you ended up with this very on-the-fly decision-making. And we saw a bunch of disorganization in a whole bunch of different places in the response. And so I, I guess the question there is, you know, this was supposed to be a policy that was aimed just to the right of the boom, to say, pandemics may happen. We have efforts to try to stop them. But when when they do, we're going to make sure that the state governments that are actually going to be on the front line of responding to this, that they're ready and that they have they can quickly step in to do the things that will minimize the costs associated with this. And it just it just didn't work at all. What was the failure there? Is there a way to do that right to make the states prepare? Or is it, is it something that the federal government can't make them do? And so it should not give them money to do it? 
No, the federal government absolutely can. And I think I think two things happen. I mean, one is I do think it was a dereliction and I've seen this across the board. There's sort of like these template plans and the governor will sign it. I have no idea what the specifics are. The federal government could be more rigorous and making sure that, dude, are those plans covering tribal communities? I mean, they're going to be specific to the state, coastal communities, which island communities, which are harder to get to for a vaccine distribution. The second issue was an issue of the policy, which any, which was 50 different states with their planning when a pandemic is more likely than not, and in every case will be, a 50-state disaster. So the entire way the statute or the regulations that required the pandemic plan was ridiculous because in most disasters, like say a big fire in Colorado, their fire planning will assume that they can call Massachusetts, which won't have the fire, and 100 guys will jump, and the gals will jump on a plane and come, and they fit into a, a, a response structure that firefighters know about, and it's relatively easy. This was, no one had taken the step back and said, oh my God, we're, all these states are relying on other states or hmm. some belief that there's going to be supply. And the federal government did not look at what happens when all 50, which happen, all 50 emergency operation centers are activated. So like lesson learned, that's just obvious. I mean, that that you could have known from the beginning. And, and, uh, and I think hopefully like a lesson learned out of this is at the very least, you will at least get regional planning for some of this stuff because these disasters, think about fires and stuff where, you know, governors purchasing power and things like that can be maximized by joining uh, different states. But there's also something I want to say about plans and logistics. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I've been very critical of the public health communications in both administrations. Uh, I think they've, and I think I'm, I'm very complimentary of the Biden administration in terms of what they've been able to do. I think they've missed a lot of the ability to narrate what they've done because uh, they did a victory lap too early, July 4th, and then they've been sort of unwilling to do one, um, I think, mm-hmm. rightfully now. Um, but responses to the boom are always going to look and be messy. Uh, and a, a, a real example that sort of, I think, kind of shook me to my core about and where I started to feel more confident that the public health community didn't know was just not right in some ways, was anyone who does logistics uh, would have known that a vaccine distribution plan would have started off exceptionally clunky, really messy, icky, because f- demand was greater than supply. And then they'd get their groove and there'd be a tidal wave. And then you'd hit a wall and, of unvaccinated and then you'd have to figure out what to do. Because in, I live in the world of, is it just going to get less bad? Yes. Just give it a month and it got less bad. And the Biden administration happened to just sort of come in at that moment when it started to get less bad. The public health community, under a standard of like, good, which is like, you know, a hard standard or, or, or zero COVID or whatever, begins to freak out about the logistics and then begins to say, well, maybe we should only do one dose or, you know, maybe half a dose or whatever. It's like everyone needs to sort of, you know, realize this stuff is messy, but the messiness can be a little bit less messy. So I've, I have two questions about that. One, one is about the usefulness of those those plans that, you know, the, if, if we had done a better job putting together those pandemic response plans. I mean, the, the Mike Tyson line is everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Are pandemics, I mean, was this pandemic, should we expect a future pandemic to be similar enough to the one that you have in the tabletop exercise that 
the plan's actually useful or is it, are you necessarily just going to be throwing these plans out? And, and if that's the case, if you're going to be throwing them out, are they a useful exercise anyway for some other reason? So um, they're always a useful exercise because one hopes, as I often do, that the planning for the high consequence events does help you in terms of the, of the potential, say, flu outbreak or... Uh, but I do think the lesson learned or the next is, is just that the federal system has to be activated earlier to minimize the harm. And that's what we didn't have January to, say, March of 2020. Those were the squandered months, right? We knew it was coming. The boom had hit. The boom hit January 4th, right? When when I alone, no, I'm joking, but like when, <laughs> when, the, when the Wall Street Journal or- We had you on left, right, and center January 30 of 2020, which was probably not quite early enough, but it was way before March. Yeah, and I was getting nervous then um, because, I mean, by then you knew it was coming. And uh, so I, I don't want to denigrate the planning. I think there's a usefulness to it. You, we did get punched in the face, but we didn't have to be at a million. Even faltering, even with the 50 state, disaster. We didn't have to be at a million. My hope now is that, you know, when you have that January to March of 2020 again, you sort of have this period that what the federal government ought to do and had the capacity to do it through statutes and planning is you just get stuff moving. We move respirators and masks and everything else that you knew that you would need. Um, And that's where we just lost so much time so that by the time most people woke up to oh my God, we went from fine to shelter in place. It just, it it was too late. We also, and I I don't want to get too deeply into this, but we had some really serious problems with the development of of a diagnostic test that I think really hampered the the response in March, that governments were unable to find out where all the COVID was because the CDC had badly screwed up in the process of trying to develop a test that that ought to have been able to be rolled out by then. I I want to ask also about the vaccine rollout because you, you you said there that uh, there was this panic and, you know, ripping up plans that didn't really need to be ripped up and we should have just understood that things would work out in a month or so. So I, I, I saw a couple of different versions of that. One was you had every state coming up with its own set of eligibility rules to figure out who was the highest priority for, for getting the vaccine. And a lot of them, including New York, where I live, um, came up with eligibility rules that ended up being so broad that in theory it was, you know, you can get a vaccine only if you're elderly or have an, uh, uh, an immunocompromising position or work in a particularly exposed field. But when you combine those things together, you were describing a large majority of the adults in the state. And so that what you called prioritization was really not prioritizing at all. Then you had states like Connecticut that did a much simpler thing where it was just, we're going to do it by age. It's going to be 75 and it's going to be 65 and on down. And I think that was a better, calmer approach that, you know, I think in retrospect, the pace of the, who got the vaccine first was a relatively small determinant of death rates compared to a number of the other, you know, errors and decisions that we've made over the period. But I think places like Connecticut had the better of that. But then you have Canada and the UK that did what I think you just objected to, which is saying, you know, instead of instead of giving two doses on the schedule that was done in the clinical trials, where you give them three weeks apart if it's Pfizer, four weeks if it's Moderna, we're going to make people wait 12 weeks for the second dose. And that seems to have produced good results. I mean, one in a foreseeable way, which is that it increased the number of people who had at least one dose of vaccine early on which, again, makes the rollout more efficient. The other thing, and I don't know that we could have known this at the time, was that it it seems like that it's actually better in terms of immune response to give the doses a little bit farther apart. I think that was just kind of good luck for... There were some scientific reasons why you might have suspected that, but we didn't know it. It's good luck for Canada and the UK that they ended up on the right side of that. But that that seems like it was an on-the-fly choice 
that was probably a correct one, right? So are there, you know, are there circumstances where they really should have been looking at aspects of the vaccine rollout plan and and ripping them up in light of the the limited supply? It seems like Canada came out on the on the better end of doing that. That's a fair critique. We are we the US are somewhat skeptical. We we have a strong anti-vax movement here that the confidence in the trials was at least key for uh, some communities uh, that that might have held out. Uh, we um, knew that we would win on the supply uh, aspects of this, so it wasn't like we had more doses available faster than Canada. We knew. I looking at the numbers. I could have told you to the date, and I was pretty right that by May. I forget the exact date, but by May you would have. Um, an overabundance of of supply. So you're talking about six weeks. And so then the consequences of changing the science, which you're begging everyone to follow the science, I think in this country would not have gone over as well as as maybe in Canada. Canada also, you know, you know, stronger on mandates. I mean, they're forcing this thing in ways that we chose not to in terms of vaccinations and has a, just a much less you know, it has doesn't have 25 percent of their population, not a single dose. We're that's where we are today. Twenty five percent, not a single shot, let alone. And then the numbers are horrible when you look at boosters. So on that subject, actually, the, the number of the questions that we got from listeners have to do with trade-offs between individual and community responsibility or between individual and government responsibility. And so Kevin Sullivan writes in to ask about moral hazard, that basically, you know, to the extent that we make these investments to the right of the boom, trying to rescue people when disasters happen, does that create more exposure to disaster, either because individuals decide, well, the government will save me so I can do this thing, or because policymakers decide we've gotten pretty good at responding when things go to hell. So we don't need to invest as much in preventing the disasters in the first place. So how do you, it, it's always, it always ends up being armchair stuff. Moral hazards do exist, but sometimes people also invent them in their heads. You saw a lot of this with the, the, you know, with the vaccine rollout where like, if we distribute a lot more tests out into the public, then maybe people will feel like they won't need to get a booster shot because they know that they can use a test to figure out if they were exposed, which I think is, is, is nuts and is like a, an example of invented moral hazard. But how do you tell, how do you tell when it's real? and when it's not and how investments in disaster response could actually fuel that. Let's just say I, I haven't seen it yet, so I'm not worried. The only thing that I can say is I am not giving up on prevention and protection. I think that they are key. But when I look at budgets in terms of counterterrorism, in terms of even mitigation, uh, climate mitigation as compared to how we distribute disaster relief funds, when I look at cyber, oh my God, cyber when I just look at where money is being spent, depending on the risk, it tends to be lopsided on left of boom. So let's shift some of that under some assumption that uh, that we are not going to be able to stop everything. But I do I do want to acknowledge that moral hazard. It has a, a less technical term or uh, the, the concern about offsetting risks. It's a uh, Bill Booth is a famous parachuter from the 70s and 80s, and he's lived a long time. And in the early, when parachutes got more sophisticated, uh, they didn't see a dramatic decline in skydiving. That only sort of happened later, decline in deaths. 
It's boost rule number two, which is people, their perception of safety because the parachutes were safer made them do crazier things. And then they died anyway. Right. So we want to always be careful of that risk offset. And what we found in parachuting is eventually the offset aligned with the safety. Uh, so we did, we've gotten about an 80% decrease in parachute deaths now uh, per jumper uh, than we had. It's still too high, but then we had uh, three decades ago. Yeah, my, my, my bias is that these moral hazard warnings are are usually wrong. I mean, you, you could, you know, you can look back decades and people saying things like, well, you know, if you have people who wear seatbelts, they'll just drive faster. We now have empirical evidence. It's very clear that seatbelts and seatbelt laws save lives. So I think, you know, on, on average, making people safer increases safety. You can get unusual circumstances where that's not the case. But I think we should sort of start from the baseline assumption that that more safety is, is in fact, safer. We have sort of a, a a separate gloss on this, or, or, or a different gloss on this from a, a, another uh, reader, Amelia Rosbar, who asks about governments and, and communities talking about being resilient um, in the face of disasters. And, the, and she worries that that basically becomes a way for the government to say, well, this is your problem. You will, you know, you respond with resiliency here. I mean, I think one, one place we see that is with the education disruption from COVID, um, where, you know, you talk about, well, well, kids are resilient. That, that could sort of become a watchword for saying, you know, well, well, who cares if they're, if they're not in school for a year and a half? But so how do you balance getting people to take community responsibility, individual responsibility for the face of disasters without that becoming an excuse for the, the government basically to, to or, or for corporations or other entities to step back from their role? No, I love this question because at the very end of the book, my editor said, you have to say something about resiliency. It's too weird that you're not because I can't stand the word because, you know, we know it when we see it and, you know, is it a mood and all this, all the debates about resiliency, but it's also so future looking that it does allow the government to delegate it to future governments, right? And therefore not prepare communities for the the fact that the floods and the tornadoes and the hurricanes are going to come. And so I'm I I think I hate the word. I think we we've abused it in the sense of of how we've interpreted what the word itself. I do a lot of words in, in the book just to describe sort of what a disaster is and what a resiliency is. But remember, resiliency good to look up words. Re is back. But resiliency or resilience is jumping. And I actually like I like that notion of resiliency because it's active in the moment, right? It is literally we're, we're acting. Are you, are you concerned at all about a sort of a, a crisis burnout? I mean, a, the, for example, it's become fashionable to refer to climate change first as the climate crisis and then as the climate emergency. And so climate change is a, is a long timescale problem. Is it even possible to have an emergency that persists for decades? And does it matter if we talk about things in, in these terms? Does that affect the way that people respond to to in-the-moment crises? No. I mean, I, I, I think it's just worth, I mean, the war on this, the climate crisis. No, it, it, it doesn't help to describe this way. We have public policy problems. I teach at a school of public policy. We have a border issues. That's not a crisis. We've had, you know, we've, we've got to figure out how the, the balance between flow across borders and unlawful Migration. We've been trying to figure that out forever. It's not a crisis. There's moments in which there is a crisis event. 10,000 15 year old boys, you know, come across from uh, Venezuela. That's an event. 
but that's not an immigration or border crisis. And I think we've we've totally, you know, like the war on, we've totally overused it. I don't think it moves anyone, but also as a way of not dealing with what can we do to mitigate the harm right now? So hold on, that's a fire alarm. This is very emergency related. Let's hold on. <laughs> Okay, you guys. How good is this for a uh, for a podcast? I do have to evacuate because if I don't evacuate, I get into trouble. So can can we close it up, or is are we good? Yes. Or? Yes. Why don't we Why don't we do that? This I mean, this- was ter- you guys are awesome. This was terrific, and um, I think you need to end with my uh, that that I of all people am going to listen to the fire. Yes. Alarm. Yes. Juliet is is running out for the fire alarm again. Her book is called The Devil Never Sleeps: Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Congratulations again, Juliet, on the book, and uh, go save yourself from this fire. You are you are immediately to the right of the boom. Exactly. Really. <laughs> literally. I've got my go bag. I'll see you later. See you later. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds this podcast and the newsletter. And we would like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That is mayo as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.